Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. True Crime Uncensored in a few months will be celebrating the beginning of our 15th year of doing this program on OutlawRadioLive.com, produced by Magic Matt Allen. Our original co-host, Don Waldman, has gone to the great beyond. Our second co-host, Howard Lapidus, joined him there. And who's next, you or me? Um, I, I'm, I'm rooting for you. Yeah, I know you are. Ron Francel. What a pleasure to have Ron Francel. Ron Francel. What's his name? Ron Francel. Yes. Try saying Ron Francel on the show five times fast. No. Well, I think it's still bad. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, Ron. Identify. I might identify as Magic Mad Allen. Yeah, Magic Mad Allen. That's the one. Same guy that's on Sirius XM. <laughs> yeah, same Welcome guy. Back. <clears throat> Welcome back. It's always a pleasure to have you here. I was, it's always a pleasure to be here. Well, I, I said, who could we have that we put a dime in him and he just runs? <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, Burrell, it's now a quarter. Yeah, it's now kind of, well, yeah, that's yeah, inflation. 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 Yeah, okay. we got to send him a quarter. <laughs> a quarter of what? <laughs> so I, uh, I I have an educated guess, yeah. uh, Ron. Um, did you write for your high school newspaper? You know, that's a good, educated guess. Yes, I did. Um, and in fact, a friend of mine and I, uh, in eighth grade, started our junior high school newspaper. You know, we use those mimeograph machines, those old uh, smelly. Yes. <laughs> I don't even know what you how you describe them anymore. <laughs> but uh, that we were both. Really, since eighth grade, I've I've had a byline appear everywhere. Wow! Uh, since we're both born in '57, I am extremely familiar with uh, mimeograph machines. They're horrible. There you go. <laughs> oh, and hours of doing uh, copying for the teachers. Do they I, still have those things? Oh, I'm sure there's in a museum somewhere. Oh yeah, I'm sure. They should have kept some of the uh, mimeograph fluid around, though. It would have uh, it certainly made us calmer. We'd be arguing about whether to legalize it now or so. <laughs> it probably is carcinogenic. Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> Only in California. Oh, yeah. Everything's carcinogenic in California. It Including may cause reproductive air, harm. Water. <laughs> uh, even even Burrow is carcinogenic. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's, I come with a warning label. <laughs> If I come at all. Uh, where, where are you now? Let me change headphones here. Hopefully I'll be able to hear you this time. Uh, Burrow was having trouble identifying. That yeah, uh, we'll find out if this works. That better? No, not at all. No. It's a tragic story. Then plug into there. Huh? Plug in. Plug in which one? That hole. Oh, that plug in that one over there? Yes, and see if yeah. that works. See, that's the thing. But we're coming up on 15 years of doing this and show. And it still doesn't And work. we've not improved anything at all. <laughs> so you, you spent um, uh, the, your early years as a, a, a journalist. Yes. How did you go from sports to crime reporting? Well, I, I wasn't in sports as a reporter, but um, uh, other than occasionally I had to cover sports. But I think that it's, uh, it, it, they both come from the same place, which is being a, a, a avid reader when I was a kid. Uh, I, you know, I, I read early. I was fascinated with books. Uh, the idea of um, uh, choosing a profession where you're using words, where you're telling stories, was natural. Uh, the way you get paid to do that uh, is as a journalist or in public relations or something like that uh, until you decide you're going to write books. And as Pearl will, con- you know, will. Uh, back me up here. Uh, you don't generally make a living wage as a writer uh, of books from the beginning. 
So, uh, so it was it was just a, it was just a way to work with words and tell stories. That's all. Um, I, I'm I'm getting the feeling that you were as you, as a young person and you're reading these books. At some point, um, one of the some of the material touched you in a particular manner, and that may have uh, influenced you also. Um, you know, I. I am aware at some point in my life, uh, you know, in my late teens, maybe, of wondering about how writers and storytellers could make me angry or sad or uh, or be entertained and laugh out loud with just some inky squiggles on a piece of paper. I it, that was magic to me, and I thought maybe that was something I'd like to be able to do, and that that stuck with me uh, all along. Uh, I think my journalism early on was uh, as a cops and courts reporter, and I graduated to other beats in my career, but. Uh, Early on, I had that exposure to uh, crime and forensics and the, the little mysteries that we live with in the police water every day. So uh, when I finally decided to write a book, it was a literary novel. It wasn't crime. Um, we had... Early on, we had difficulty selling that story because it was a literary story by an unknown writer, male writer at that. Uh, so uh, my agent at the time suggested that I write something more commercial, and so I wrote a couple of mysteries, and they did okay. But it wasn't until um, uh, I wrote a, a story about a crime against two two young women in my hometown, literally my next door, literally the girls next door. Angel Fire? Uh, that that my my career as a true crime writer took shape. That was, that was uh, Angel fall. Fire? That was fall? Yeah, it, it came out originally in hardback as fall. Uh, St. Martin's Press bought the mass market paperback rights and hated that title. So they, they, they said at some point, we just want a more true crimey title. So that's their word. Um, and so they changed it to The Darkest Night, and, and that mass market paperback edition, you know, just went, went it just skyrocketed. And oh, so yeah. well, after a, that... It's a hell of a good book. In case oh, you didn't know, you. it's a fabulous book. Uh, well, thank you very much. It um, it it had the effect of uh, oh, I don't know, typecasting me as a true crime writer. Uh, and <laughs> Welcome to the everything, club. Yeah, everything else that came after that, every idea I had after that, had to be true crime. Or agents, editors, they weren't interested. I had a following in true crime, so uh, we just released book number eighteen. Um, last March, I did a show with you, Shadow Man, and uh, that was, uh, uh, well, being number 18 from four. So the 14 books in between there were uh, uh, all crime-oriented in some way, with one exception, I guess. Was there similar, uh, the... The, the similarities between your path and mine uh, are, are rather striking. I started off in high school doing the high school radio show. Yeah. yeah. And uh, with Pat Craig, who's now become quite a well-known author with his uh, Amish mysteries. And uh, as he said, you know what an Amish woman's sexual fantasy is? I said, what's that? He said, two Mennonite. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's bad for you. <laughs> uh, well, no, I'll never be as funny as you, Pearl. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, <laughs> I didn't make that joke up. 
<laughs> not taking credit. No, not taking credit for that one. But, uh, no, Pat gets credit for that. He was my first, my very first radio co-host when I was in high school. So it's uh, always fun having him back on the show. But it is true when, uh, uh, in the true crime world, uh, after I did uh, Ban Overboard, I did, uh, what was it, uh, Murder in the Family, which is a New York Times bestseller. The publisher immediately signed me to a multi-book contract. Mm-hmm. And uh, all true crime books, of course. And so when I started to write uh, a mystery series, uh, got great reviews. But people said, no, you're a true crime writer. We don't want to read that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I guess um, if I had news, it would be that uh, uh, my book number 19 is coming out in February. And it a fiction. It's a crime fiction. And I wrote it during COVID when I couldn't go out and do the research, the boots on the ground research that I do. I couldn't find motels uh, during COVID. I couldn't gas up the car. I couldn't talk to people face to face. couldn't go in a courthouse. So I took all the things I knew about the criminal mind and forensics and, and people in general and locked myself in my office and wrote this mystery. Uh, I, I fully expect that there will be a little of that reaction that you're describing out there among readers because we did see it with editors. Editors were reading it, and I was getting all these glowing rejections saying, hey, look, characters, love the plot, love, love the idea, love, you know, whatever. Uh, but, eh, no, you're, you're, A, you're a true crime writer. B, you're, you challenge kind of the current trend to have female-driven mystery and suspense. So that was another thing. Um, because my, my book, uh, my mystery is about, uh, a group of, old men who are, you know, just waiting around to die and and slowly disappearing from our view, like old men do. So it's, it's, it's A, it's a mystery, it's got a crime, but then there's this other element that's kind of a literary treatment of uh, growing old as a man. And and some of the things you're facing and and some of the ways old guys relate to each other. So, we'll see. Well, being an old guy, I could certainly uh, be eager to read this book. You'll love this book, believe me. Yeah, I'm sure I will. Uh, one of the most interesting rejection letters I received, I can't remember who the publisher was when I wrote my, my um, Jeff Reynolds mystery headlock, was, we really enjoyed this. Is every bit as good as a book by Harlan Coban or somebody else they mentioned that I really like? And that's the problem. We we uh, we published them, so we're going to pass on yours. Yeah, <laughs> Gee, yeah. thanks. Exactly. It's, uh, I think that young writers don't really understand how subjective this is. You can write a good book um, and never never have it published at a, a, a mainstream type publisher uh, because today uh, book, book mark, the book sales are more about marketing than they are about the literature itself uh, I think one the, the, the game is convincing people to buy the book and then hoping that the book is a good good one that reminds and, me of uh the fellow who wrote uh, The Godfather, Mario Puzo, said, if yeah. I would have known the book was going to be such a success, I would have written a better book. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, there are a lot of um, uh, examples out there. I've heard John Grisham say it, uh, the late Tony Hillerman said it, and that they draw a line between the sort of a literary kind of author who's delving into deep stories and and the human condition and all that crap. And what they were, or are, uh, and that is storytellers. Stephen King has said it. I'm more storyteller than writer. 
Uh, I just happen to be doing it in writing, but but my strength is telling this story. So I think there are all kinds of elements that a lot of people don't uh, take into account, especially in this day and age of self-publishing, where everybody's a writer. Yeah, that's that is a bit problematic, and and life is full of surprises. I was uh, doing a book signing for uh, Capture the Saint, uh, which was in a limited run and done for the uh, uh, the the Saint Club, and uh-huh. uh, Michael Conley was uh, signing right after me. He was so excited. Turns out he was a big fan of mine. <laughs> he was so excited to get an autographed copy of Capture the Saint, but so which was thrilling for me because I'm a big fan of his. And uh, we kind of swapped books, you know, signed to each other. And then when I did the uh, uh, novelization of the same movie with Val Kilmer, they had read Capture the Saint and they said very politely, "Can you be less literary?" Yes, exactly. Uh, I said, you mean dumb it down? And they said, yes. Today's audiences aren't quite uh, at the same level they were in terms of their reading abilities <laughs> as people were 30, 40 years ago. So they had me write the same paragraph three different ways. The way I would do it originally, the way I would simplify it, and then really simplify it, kind of like yeah. Jane Spot and Fluff, you know? <laughs> and and they picked the one they wanted, and that's the style I wrote it in. But I, I, that was kind of a, an interesting experience to go through. Can you be less literary? Yes, yes, well, I can. In the, I, I, I won't say the old days, but early, when, when we were starting, let's say the 80s, 90s, um, literary was a bad word. It was a nasty word. Um, publishers didn't like to hear you say, well, I've written this literary novel. Um, it, you, you talk, we talked a little bit about The Darkest Night, and I always, have, I, I always approach my true crime in the narrative nonfiction form, which really means you're trying to imprint a true story with a kind of literary feel. Uh, if you go and you look at Amazon on that book or a lot of my books, you'll see some bad reviews say something like, oh, why, did, why does this guy describe how the color of the hair of the sheriff or, or the, the way the trees are blowing or, you know, I just want the facts. And that's that's the reaction to the literary part of what we what we do. Well, you notice if I was told by my agent when I had one uh, years ago, don't read your reviews on Amazon. Well, definitely don't do that. No, don't read your reviews because first of no. all, there are there are trolls who will give you one star reviews. Never trust a one star review. They probably never read the book. But besides that. The negative reviews are the ones that are going to stick in your head, and they're going to screw you up. And she was absolutely right. Uh, well, I, I you write for your to, audience. Well, you do write for your audience. Not the ones who don't. Yes, that's what she told me. She said, remember, you're writing for people who like your style, not those who don't. <laughs> right. I think we've seen it in true crime. That I, I've talked about this before, maybe even on your show, that... Uh, I think the genre breaks down in two subgenres, at least in the in the sense of voice. One is the, the commercial, and it's fairly formulaic. It it follows a, an easy pattern to see. Uh, it tends to be about domestic violence gone terribly wrong. Uh, there tend to be female victims or investigators or prosecutors. Um, and, but they always turn out that the bad guy gets what's coming to him, and they follow a fairly standard formula. Right. There are then the more uh, literary approaches, and, and we've seen that with uh, starting with Truman Capote, but more recently in... Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, uh, John Barron, uh, 
uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, mm-hmm. um, uh, Eric Larson with Devil in the White City, and some of the, the anything by James Elroy uh, are tend to be more literary. And it ne'er the queen shall meet. It's like the fans of the commercial find the literary too tedious and too cumbersome and too messed up with all this colorful writing. Where fans of John Barrett and Truman Capote and the rest find that more commercial to be a little more um, lurid, uh, a little more exploitative. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And now what uh, what French Gerardo and I decided to do, we, we kind of talked about this before we, we wrote together, was we took a third approach. And that is, well, how about if we tell the story as if we're just sitting here telling the story like we are right now, conversationally, right. Uh, breaking the fourth wall if we want to, uh, which I did in... in Man Overboard, I intentionally violated every rule of true crime writing in the formula just to see if I could get away with it. And I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so we decided to do that uh, with uh, uh, A Taste for Murder and uh, Betrayal in Blue. And people commented they really liked the fact that we just told the story like we're talking to them. Uh, we still had the journalistic integrity of having thoroughly investigated what we were writing about. And the thing that really surprised me, and uh, you'll see it in uh, a book we have coming out hopefully this year, which we don't know the title of yet. It was originally called To Live and Lie in L.A., but uh, I think it'll have a different title, where we tend to get people who cooperate with us that are the last people you would ever expect. Uh, In Betrayal in Blue, we had the head of the Dominican drug cartel, uh, call us up and wanted to make sure he was portrayed correctly and (laughs) gave us an in-depth interview. Uh, In this one, we have an actual Mafia Don tell us the entire story of how he did this massive scam with the Russian mob, how successful it was, how much money he made. (laughs) And, you know, you think, how do you say, how in the world do you get these people to tell you this stuff? Well, as you know, first of all, if it's been seven, over seven years, they can't be arrested. And most importantly, they trust us. And that's what I find so, so much fun, is that if you get a good reputation for ethics and integrity as a true crime writer, they will tell you everything. And I think so. They need to trust you. Yeah. Uh, all of our sources need to trust us. Uh, and what you're describing to me is a good thing. Yes. Because um, it's, it's a departure from the formula. You know, if you were a romance writer and you signed up with, um, you know, major romance publishers, they'd send you a, a, a guidebook, right. uh, just a really one page that would say, okay, by page 16, they have to kiss by page 23, the, the, the lady has to be in peril. You know, right. they set it out because that's the formula. And I think a lot of today's true crime uh, is written in that formula. And, and it's not bad. It, it sells more than the literary. Uh, it's, it's more popular in that respect. But it was the transition between... Um, Jack Olson and Dan Rule, both of whom are greats, but they are they represent totally different, those two totally extremes. Different. Yeah, um, yeah. Jack was not a big fan of Anne. <laughs> Anne was very different, and very she different. transformed. She transformed true crime. She created a lot of true crime fans, and uh, today's a lot of true crime writers today benefit from that. Uh, it's just not my storytelling style, and it's not the kind of story I want to tell. Yeah. You know, speaking of the romance, I actually wrote a romance book. You're kidding. No, called Kisses in the Rain, and I stole the plot from a Harlequin romance book, so I just followed the same plot, 
Uh, I just changed the industry that it took place in and changed the characters. But as far as the structure went, it was from one of their old books, right? I figured I can't go wrong here. And it was rejected. said, we really enjoyed the romance scenes. <laughs> we were, <laughs> but we didn't much care for the plot. Everybody says, what are your own? I stole what uh, completely. Your about. book. What are you talking about? Yeah, I stole that plot from one of your old books. <laughs> I, I, I have kept a few of my rejections over the years. I think the best one was on my very first book, uh, that literary novel, Angel Fire, um, I, I got one day I got a, a rejection from some editor that said, you know, this it kind of drags in the middle, and I, you know, it just doesn't move with the rhythm that I expect. A day later, I get another uh, rejection, different editors saying, you you rushed through this too quickly. Oh yeah. <laughs> And and I kept those. They are together right now. But uh, you, you get those you get those rejections, and they're subjective. Um, for this mystery that I'm talking about, that's coming out in in um, February, I I base a lot of the storytelling in there on true stories, and the prologue to the book was. Uh, not at word for word, but with only a minor alteration of name and place and time, it was the authentic story of the the young, the, the like five year old experience of a real serial killer that was taken from from studies about this guy. And I just used it as the prologue. Mm-hmm. Um, we submitted the book, and an editor almost within hours came back to my agent and said, um, I, I stopped at the end of the prologue. I will not be buying this book. And, and I understand it was a rather grim uh, graphic thing. Uh, and later we took it out, but uh, the, the the reality was that it was reality. Yeah, the reality can really interfere with people enjoying a book. Yeah, we we, we tell us fake stuff, and and frankly, I don't know in this particular case that the editor might have assumed it was fake. It that it was. Uh, that it lacked authenticity because it couldn't have happened. Oh, yeah, it's always the true stuff they don't believe. Uh, I had the same situation with, with actually, with a review I read on Amazon, which I shouldn't read, of Capture the Saint. said, the part of this that is totally unbelievable is that this particular thing happens, and that solves the case. And that is so ridiculous. You know, couldn't bear a cover with something better than that. That part of the story was absolutely true. Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was from an actual murder case that was solved that way. And as I said in the introduction, the most unbelievable parts of the story are true. <laughs> yeah, what was it? Mark Twain had a quote, and it was something like, uh, truth is stranger than fiction because fiction requires that it be possible. (laughs) (laughs) That's very well said. It's amazing. Another one, I guess, you wonder what book they read. Uh, Someone objected to uh, one of my true crime books. He said, way too much stuff about ballistics in this book. The murder was committed with a knife. There was nothing about ballistics at all in the book. Well, exactly. You, you might have just mentioned ballistics. It might have been one word in the in the thing, but that was too much for this one person, and and that's what I mean. I think that some people just have a very low level of power, and um, I, of course, gun people are are the first ones to weigh in on any crime writing uh, when we get it wrong. Yeah, what, uh, what the, there was something brilliant I was going to say. Mark, you have another question, I'm sure, for our illustrious guest. Mm, yes, I do. Yes, he does. So, 
Uh, how do you pick what you're going to write about? How do you choose your subjects? Yeah, uh, I might have said this about Shadow Man when I was on the show, but the, the, the secret... And the secret of my success as a writer has always been that I never pick a story that I can screw up. <laughs> um, How do you I, know you can't screw it up? Well, because you, know, you look at this story and you say, you know, I, I would have to be consciously trying to mess this up. This story tells itself. Now, who didn't watch... Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard on TV and say this would make a great movie. Yeah. Um, because you, you couldn't screw that up. You could take the trial transcript and, and write a script. So I, I'm looking for stories that are deeper, that they have uh, uh, the kind of conflict or crime that that makes me perk up. Uh, I, I hate to use the word ordinary uh, in regards to domestic violence where a husband kills a wife or a wife kills a husband. That's, that's the stuff of commercial true crime writing right now. Uh, and it, they, they eat it up. But that's, to me, that's not that interesting. Um, I'm not fascinated by serial killers, but I am fascinated by how people react to them. Um, whether it's victims, victims' families, law enforcement, whatever. And I want a story that lets me illustrate something about the, the human condition um, and has colorful characters. People that are not you know, the the handsome guy next door who couldn't possibly have beaten his wife, but then turns out in the end that he did. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems a little cliche to me. So, so I'm looking at, at interesting circumstances, interesting characters, um, and something worth saying about us. Are you there? Yeah, Yeah, I'm here. Are you guys still with us? Most of the stories that you guys write about, there are the collateral damage to the actual crime. And talking about them and and what, what the effect was on their lives is just as important as telling who did what to whom. Yeah, that's a good point. I think in many ways that's the reason we're doing it. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm aware that there are people, readers out there that want to know every single thing they could possibly know about Ted Bundy. I find Ted Bundy to be uninteresting. He's um, except as the gas in the engine that makes um, that that tells us how ordinary people react to what he did. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, as, yeah uh, it, what's his name? Uh, Brent Turvey. Uh, sure. His, his comment on serial killers is, they tried it, they liked it, they did it again. They're not mm-hmm. that deep. Actually, they're nope, rather they're shallow. Not. But they do start the story moving. Yes. And and I think that when a reader picks up a true crime, a reader doesn't immediately identify, I hope. Yeah, I hope. <laughs> um, they might immediately identify with a victim or with the victim's family or law enforcement. They're going to ask themselves, what would I do in this situation? Um and I think that's the story I like to tell, is showing ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances and and having you, the reader, say, you know, that they reacted in a way that I don't think I could. And I, I'm I'm impressed by that. I'm I'm inspired by that. Looking at that person, not Ted Bundy. 
You know, the the one that uh, Frank and I have been working on, we thought we'd have it done about a year ago. But it's turned out to be far more than we thought it was when we started. Uh, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about it because, you know, we found out our listeners love it when we talk shop like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have fully clothed, reclining on the bed as if asleep in just one part of the of the apartment. The last three people known to be in the apartment were a Russian gangster and two homeless teens. One of them a pregnant girl, the other her boyfriend, who uh, has some uh, developmental problems, severe ADHD. What were they doing together? What was their connection? And the question isn't so much who killed this guy, but who didn't kill him? Mm-hmm. Russian gangster. We started investigating. It took us all the way to the Russian mob, took us to Vesco, took us to the American mafia. It took us all over the place. Including the FBI. And the DEA. Uh, it was astonishing. So we, at the beginning of the book, we tell people, listen, you're going to have to do what the people we talk to. Trust us. We're going to tell you stories and you'll ask yourself, what the hell does this have to do with the murder? Exactly. Trust exactly. us. Just trust us. It all comes together. No, it's a tale of two cities. Yeah, we have, it's kind of like French Lieutenant's You have you know, parallel lives going on here that seem to have no connection. They lead to stories that apparently have no connection, but if it will, they, they won't be able to handle all this. And then, then it moved too fast, you know, then it was too short. So we put some, some back in. Uh, we're finally finishing it up, uh, and there isn't going to be that satisfaction of the bad guys caught and punished because They're not. Uh, that's not what happens. Right. Uh, but it, it's a fascinating story. And you get to follow us as we investigate this and where it leads. And where it leads isn't necessarily where you want it to go. But it's true. It is true, and it is true crime on many, many levels. Uh, and has that been purchased? Huh? Is that under contract? Oh, yeah. We got a contract for it with okay, Wild Blue good, Press. Good. It's, uh, uh, we just have to finish up the, uh, the final chapter. And uh, there's one more interview we want to do, and that's with uh, a fellow who is in prison for this murder, who's coming up for parole, who we firmly believe didn't do it, uh, and uh, who we think probably did, was found not guilty in a separate trial and can't be tried again. So, you know, it's never going to work out the way you'd like it to. But uh, just how all these different elements that seem totally disconnected if they hadn't transpired, neither would this murder have taken place. And I'd imagine this is a great uh, illustration, too, of uh, but uh, I won't say typical, but uh, not unusual um, investigation, where you get you go off in a number of of odd directions, some of them wrong. Um, and and you sort of slowly uh, come to the to the right conclusion, one hopes. Yes. Uh, but um, I, uh, my book, Alice and Gerald, a homicidal love story that came out um, about six years ago, about a couple who separately and together killed five people. Uh, I. I tell the story right up front uh, in the first chapter. The story is ultimately not who done it, but uh, this you you get a ringside seat on the investigation that lasts for thirty years, wondering whether the cops are going to be able to put this together and whether justice will be done. Uh, I I. I, a lot of the commentary that I've gotten back uh, from people is is just about what you're facing right now, too, which is this isn't like a true crime. 
Yeah. And and you say, well, the hell it isn't. <laughs> it is the true crime. This is the true story. This is exactly what happened. Yeah, but the story uh, isn't that they killed people and how they killed them. It's the time spent in them evading capture. Exactly, and and you know, whether right. whether law enforcement is going to put all the dots together, um, and that's a big part of the story too. So I I think there are a, a billion stories that are out there. Half of them will never be told because they don't fit the pigeonholes right. that modern publishing is putting on them. Um, I, and and a shout out to Wild Blue Press, which I think is um, is doing some things that that are running against those pigeonholes. They're zigging while the industry is zagging, uh, and doing some God really good work. God bless for it. Did you read yep. uh, 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 Matt Phelps? It was M. William Phelps. He writes under uh, his, yeah, where he says, "Boy, it's great to have a publisher." That will let you do this stuff. It doesn't, yep. you know, which is true. They do trust us, you know. And that comes. That doesn't come from a marketing perspective. That that isn't somebody taking taking the idea and exploiting it. That's coming from uh, a, a true crime writer like Steve Jackson, who founded the the press, uh, and he's he's recognizes this. He recognizes. That, that our little corner of the publishing world uh, needs this kind of thing and, and this kind of unusual disjunctive storytelling that can turn into something very cool. Well, why do you think he started the, the publisher? I think that's maybe lot, one reason why. Well, why did Stephen start yeah. a publishing company? He needed an outlet for his material that no one else wanted. I, I think that was I think that was part of it because Steve is a thinker, and a lot of people like Pearl uh, that gravitated to Wild Blue Press uh, are thinkers, and they were people who were increasingly not fitting the pigeonholes in New York. And they were still telling great stories, and they were telling them with inventive and creative new, new rhythms. But um, they weren't. I, I proposed a few years ago. I proposed a story, a true crime story, about a case that that as I was learning about it, I'm laughing, and I imagined this should be a, maybe the world's first true crime humor book. I mean, I should tell this story with a kind of, um, you know, smirk. Uh, nobody, ultimately, nobody dies, and that's the good part. But it wasn't for lack of trying. <laughs> well, when I, when, I, uh, when I proposed the book, we could not find any traction. We couldn't find anybody who would even say, hey, you know what? This could be cool. They were all... Hey, this is funny. You made me laugh. I I think you'll do a great job with it. But no, uh, the world isn't ready for funny true crime. Yeah, and, so yeah, and yet when I did Man Overboard, Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, which is a funny true crime book, and that was how I met Jack Olson. He liked it so much he sought me out. He said, "Boy, I love that book." He says, "You you broke every conceivable true crime stereotype." And yet, it had journalistic integrity. He says, I got right. his biggest kick out of it. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that was enough validation for me <laughs> right there. You well, know. Janet Ivanovich has been doing fictional crime humor forever. Mm-hmm. I, I love Stephanie Plum. You know, the whole thing just cracks me up. And, and the kind of funny crime fiction, or at least crime fiction that has humorous moments, is very popular. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, a true crime, uh, a, a funny true crime book, uh, it, it, it just, I couldn't sell it. And that may be my flaw more than the, the, uh, genre's flaw, right. but, um, it, uh, 
it's not that I think the world needs true crime humor. It's it's that I wish we were rewarding um, more of the creative um, uh, the creative approaches to this old genre. Um, I sat in I sat in a number of writing workshops and conferences where. Uh, editors or agents have sat up there at the front of the room and talked about we're looking for the next Hemingway, and I now know that they're not. They're not. No, they're. They say, please don't be the next Hemingway. The next guy <laughs> who writes like the last guy who sold a million copies. Well, yeah, you know, it's a very risk-averse industry. Right. Um, I am not a fan of Grisham. I found his material quite dry. And hard to get through. And then yeah, he goes yeah. and writes, one, uh, writes a book about going to Europe to play sports that had me in stitches. Grisham is one of those guys who said, I am a storyteller. I'm not a writer. I, I'm so, not a good know, writer. He walked but I'm a storyteller. I tell a good story. It's hard to beat a time to kill. Um, and and no, frankly, I, a lot... Uh, there aren't many um, theories, mystery, and suspense writers who sustain that over, you know, ten books. Uh, a couple that I could name that I believed it, but you might disagree. Most lose their gas and they just get uh, dragged along by the industry churning things out because people will buy them. Stephen King uh, comes to mind. Stephen King comes to mind. Uh, you know, there are... I, um, uh, I I kind of lost it, uh, lost him at Rose Matter. And I was trying to get through it and there's just so much composition going on. But. Yeah, and, and it gets back to where we kind of started our conversation, which is um, uh, you, you, uh, a sophisticated reader knows when to put it down and say, okay, well, I've had enough Stephen King or I've had enough Grisham uh, and move on to the next the next book that might interest you. Uh, but you're right. You're absolutely right. He does, uh, he does uh, in uh, Cujo, which I thought was a fabulous book, and the movie was really well done with Dee Wallace. Um, in, the, in the prologue, he talks about what fear is. Talks about what? Fear. Fear, fear. yes. I've what experienced that. Yeah. And he says, he describes it as a, a pleasant summer evening, nice cool temperatures, a breeze coming from the window. You're dropping off to sleep when a cold, clammy hand grabs your ankle. <laughs> <laughs> Well, he's right. He's right. He's right about that. I've read a, he's famous about these reviews we're not supposed to read. Uh, I was reading a review of Murder in the Family that I thought was really a good review. I mean, in fact, that I liked it. And it said that, yeah, I've read that Burl Bear has written a lot of books since then, but none of them, while they're all good in their own way, none of them are equal to this. This is his, you know, true crime masterpiece. And going, well, he's probably right. You know, uh, that was a particular case, a particular book written in a particular way for a particular, you know, it had to fit that, what you were talking about, the formula. It had to be a hundred and exactly uh, 100,000 words to the, you know, whatever. And uh, it was a horrifying crime. And I did all the appropriate research. And it was by so far <laughs> my only New York Times bestseller. I'm happy I had one. My advice to new writers has always been, at the beginning of your career, have a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because that. you can put that yeah. on the front of your books forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and Steve Martin uh, 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 said, you know, has a little bit out on how to be a millionaire. And the first sentence of the item is, get a million dollars. That's right. <laughs> From there, it's all downhill. <laughs> yeah. Then you'll want to be a... Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about the trying different approaches, uh, different narrative forms, and yet having what, what uh, Jack also called journalistic integrity, 
there are millions just there's always different ways of telling a story different ways of structuring it absolutely uh, and I can only give you an example of one of the, the things that I challenges I faced and I had to come up with a different way of structuring the story was when I did uh, the book about Phil Champagne the climax actually happens in the middle of the story so mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to keep it from being there I went back and forth in time, well, time so that I could put the climax towards the end instead of in the middle <laughs> that's the only way I could without the whole last half of the book being you know downhill from there you know you have to come up with ways of doing things so that it is good for the reader <laughs> you know as well as exactly and it's it's just the creative part of what we do and I um, I, I think sometimes uh, that gets lost especially in this day and age of uh, self-publishing where people can bypass the normal filters of practice and agents and rejection and and reader comment. Um, so I, I uh, in some ways, our storytelling has has diminished. So I try to talk about um, creativity and uh, doing things a little differently. Hemingway became Hemingway because he did he did it differently. And we all owe a debt to him today, whether we write like him or not. Uh, we we owe him that debt, and um, we're we're swimming upstream with the industry because they're getting you know more frightened as each day passes, and so they become less Risky. inclined to take risks. Yeah, uh, I had uh, Greg Olson. You know Greg. Oh, yeah. Uh, on the show, we had a great conversation. And he was pointing out the fact that we're still here. <laughs> we're still doing it. <laughs> yes, we we haven't right. stopped. <laughs> he says, if you go back and look at when we started and who's still around, you know, we're still around. We haven't given up. We're hey, still at it. Burrow. Yeah. We have to have Ron back. We love having Ron on the show. When death Row. Yeah, for Death Row Records. Oh, <laughs> Ron, it's always a pleasure having you. This Great is, conversation, is. Ron. Love having you on the show. We'll have you back again soon. Thank you so much. Uh, please do. We'll see you in a few months. Okay, great. All right, All right guys. Thank, Thank you. you.